This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by Promega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. Episode 140, that's a milestone. Five years, that's a milestone. 40 years old, that's a milestone. So many milestones. Keep going, man. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we dip into the mailbag and talk about success outside of grad school and the difference between biological and biomedical. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 140. I'm Joshua Hall. I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Dan, always fun when we hit those nice round numbers. 140. 140, yeah, this is exciting. Headed toward 150. And I think there are some other milestones, Josh, that we, we have not yet talked about. Yeah, I think with the craziness of COVID, we completely overlooked that we bypassed a Hello PhD birthday and not our own birthdays, which also occurred this month, uh, but the birthday of our podcast. How many is it now? A hundred? I went back and looked. Our first episode posted on July 9th, 2015, Dan. So we now are hosting a five-year-old podcast. We're in our sixes. And you, Josh, I would be remiss if I did not mention, because <laughs> I believe last year around this time, you made fun of me for uh, 15 minutes or so. You officially turned 40. Yep. If I sound older this week than I did in the last episode, I have entered my 40s. For one, episode 140, you are now 40. And <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> what's really sad to me, John, I was thinking about this just now. For my birthday, I took you and a couple of our friends out and we went axe throwing. We went to a distillery. We ate wood-fired pizza at a fancy restaurant. We went to an we arcade. We had a big time. Yeah, oh, it was amazing. And what did we do for your birthday, Josh? Uh, we sat on a friend's deck and had a beer. Under some fans. We didn't wear masks, <laughs> but we were very separated. Yeah, we were distanced out, and it was a little less um, extraordinary than the celebration from your birthday, but I, I, I had a great time. I considered throwing an axe at you just for fun, but I didn't do it. <laughs> Human interaction in person is really all the stimulation I need these days. We'll take it. Uh, one thing that I wanted to follow up from the last show is we mentioned we're going to try to have a little more intentionality and creativity with our ethanol segment at the top of the show. And last week I mentioned that I was going to attempt to procure some Budweiser Zero, not because I think we'll like it, but just because I'm completely enamored with the thought of what a Budweiser product with zero calories and zero percent alcohol could actually taste like. And? It was sold out everywhere I went. Was it sold out, Josh, or does it not exist? Is it possible that they just put the label on the shelf, but Budweiser Zero <laughs> is literally nothing, and so you can't purchase it because it's not there? It is zero calories because it does not exist. There's no can, zero carbon footprint. It's an amazing non-entity. <laughs> so I I can't decide if my hypothesis is that it is surprisingly popular or Budweiser just produced so little of it that it's not on the shelves. But I went to a couple different places that normally would have it and they are sold out of it. So 
So I won that round. Tell me what you bought instead that I'm much happier about. So what I did do is I went to our local bottle shop, Dan, and we are set on some very interesting and wide-ranging beers. Well, actually, not just beers, as we'll talk about Ethanols. in a second. Ethanols. to have over the next couple of months. And so we're not in fall yet, but I think we're going to largely kick off our IPA free fall. So we'll explore some different types of uh, fermented beverages. And tonight, Dan, we are kicking it off with the lowball citrusy highball cider by Shaxbury, which is, is brewed in Vermont in the Champlain Valley. We should have asked Jada, who was on the show last week, who's at Vermont, uh, if she knows Shaxbury. The first thing you notice about this, it is a tiny, tiny can. It is an eight-ounce can. It is, it's not half the size, I guess, but it's two-thirds of the size, right? You know, it occurred to me, have you ever had anything in an eight-ounce can? This is like a short can. They started releasing Coca-Cola in tiny cans, so I have seen them, but I've never, I don't think I've ever had anything out of one. Well, I have a little bit of a bone to pick because um, it is clear from the description, which we will read in just a second on Shaxbury's website, but also in bold print on the can, they're very proud of the fact that this this serving of lowball cider is only 70 calories. But I feel like that's sort of cheating when you basically cut the volume of a traditional can down by 50%. That's pretty classic <laughs> marketing, though. Um, I have to say, as I was picking this up out of the fridge to bring it up to podcast, my wife intercepted me, and she took, out of my eight fluid ounces, I think she probably took four of my fluid ounces. So <laughs> I'm, I'm really struggling here tonight. Well, have you tried this yet, Dan? I'm about to open my can. I, I've not no, even open your can. It is, it is actually quite good. And it says on the side, citrusy, whiskey-y, and bubbly. And I do get a, a flavor of whiskey. They they age it, I think, in, in a little bit of oak. And so there's a, a hint of like a Manhattan in it. And it, I really like it. Well, I'm, I'm really interested to try it. And that is what drew me to this one in particular because I don't often think when I'm thinking cider, citrusy, I'm like, okay, I can I can feel that. But a whiskey-y cider... That that was new to me. So I'm going to try it. Dan, are you drinking out of the can or did you pour it in a glass? I don't have a glass this small, Josh. So I poured mine in a glass. Look how clear this is. Yeah, it's, a, it's a light. Very light. Straw colored, I would say. It's good. Not sweet. It's not overly sweet. They say on the side two grams of sugar, so you know it's not overly sweet. Very dry. And, and you know, that is usually Am I allowed to ask how much this costs? Can I afford this? Um, yes. You know, I paid a little more of a premium because I just bought two cans. I want to say that a six-pack of this would have been like $13 or something $13 like that. $13 for six <laughs> tiny cans? <laughs> yeah. I was about to recommend this. If you're sitting around the pool with your white claw, replace it with this because you'll look even more whatever it is you look like when you drink a white claw. But Well, uh, according to Shaxbury, this is a limited edition cider. So. Okay. Uh, but you're right, Dan. This is this would be a great summertime drink. Only 4.8% ABV. They say it's light, bright, and tight. I'd believe that. I'm trying to decide if I get the whiskey. Oh, I, I I definitely get something something that is not a cider out of it. You work on it, Josh. Uh, and I will remind people that we want to thank our patrons, our Patreon patrons, and also Promega, uh, who has a website up for people who are working in the lab, but they maybe need a little bit of help with a reagent or a buffer or a protocol that they don't know about yet, go to promega.com slash hellophd, and you will find the Student Resource Center. So if you're back in lab, you need a little bit of help, 
check that out, promega.com slash HelloPhD, and you will click through and find all sorts of ways to optimize your protocols and be a success in lab this summer. All right, Dan. Well, we are going to answer some listener mail today. So would you like to get right into it? We definitely should. I only have a tiny can, so we got to hurry this up. All right, Dan. So five years ago when we started this show, our impetus really was to be a support system and be maybe a a light in the darkness <laughs> for graduate students going through the process. We've said this a number of times throughout the years, but we think science is important. We think science training is important, but we recognize from our own personal experiences and the many people we know that it can be challenging and it can beat you down sometimes. And so one of the things we always wanted to do and always want to do on this show is is help grad students because whatever you're going through, you're probably not alone. You're probably not the only one uh, struggling in that way. And hopefully we can be a conduit of support to help you through the things that you're going through and the things you're thinking about as science trainees. And so along those lines, we're going to do one of our favorite things today on this episode. And that is uh, just answer some of your questions and, and hear some of your feedback. That's right. And to start us off, it was a response to a, a episode we did a little bit ago where we were talking about comprehensive exams. And we have promised to, to try to cover this issue more in depth. But we asked people, what do your comprehensive exams look like? How are they different? How are they the same? And one of them that stood out, one of the responses we got that stood out to me was uh, Josh wrote in, not you, obviously, and said, my department, which is computer science and engineering, doesn't even really have an exam. Instead, if you pass certain required classes with a 3.0 or higher, then you have passed the comprehensive exam. I'm not sure what passing a few classes is supposed to evaluate, but thank you for what you're doing. And so this was one of the unusual examples of what a comprehensive exam means. It's not an exam. It is just a requirement that you have to pass to be eligible for your PhD. Yeah, it sounds like uh, in Josh's case, you pass your classes and, all right, that's good. Now continue on to your, your PhD. Which would have been kind of, that would be included in any other program that also had comprehensive exams, right? You can't fail out of all your classes and pass your comps and still get a PhD, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I know most of the programs I know about, there is also a requirement is, you're absolutely right, that you have to hit a certain benchmark with your coursework to, to keep going. You know, Dan, I can remember, I don't know your approach towards graduate coursework when you were a grad student. I don't remember us talking too much about courses, really. But for me, graduate school coursework, I can actually remember a couple courses I had where it was very apparent that the class was set up where somebody was just going to run through slides and it really didn't seem to matter. A whole, all the slides were posted. And so there were a couple I realized like, well, I think I'd rather just be in lab and you know, do my rotation stuff. And I would say my participation in some of my grad level courses were poor, unfortunately. Yeah, I agree. I think I still have nightmares now about showing up to a class and being unprepared for it because there were certain classes that I did not attend as often as I probably should have. I'm probably more as an undergrad than as a graduate student. But yeah, I definitely made it through classes without being there all the time. Well, and you know, I remember being an undergrad where I feel like grades were more in the forefront of my mind as an undergrad. 
you know, that GPA always is sort of looming and is an important thing. And especially if you're moving towards graduate school or medical school or, or some postgraduate program, you know that that transcript and those grades is going to be some important component of that. And so I can remember being motivated in undergrad by wanting to get good grades, but I don't remember having that same feeling in grad school. And, and I don't know if part of it was in our program, and I think a lot of programs, instead of the A, B, C, and D, 4.0 GPA type thing, you had more of a pass-fail system. And the joke that I'm sure many have heard is the goal of grad coursework is get the P for PhD. And <laughs> don't worry too much about it. So I don't know if that's the best approach, but that Shooting was probably that, the one I took. 60% to graduate. So anyway, it's interesting to hear this perspective on this. Yeah, I include this as we consider uh, an episode on comprehensive exams, because I know that you are going to think deeply about what they measure and whether they're worth it. And I I wanted this email in here on the record so that we could understand not everybody takes a comprehensive exam and people are still fine. Uh, And so, you know, it, it is one end of that spectrum that we need to be able to consider as we think about this. Yeah, and I think that's great. All right, what else do we have, Dan? All right, uh, the next message comes from Adam, and I'm just going to summarize this a little bit, but Adam writes, I finished my undergrad in the spring of last year and started doing undergrad research my junior year and loved it, and my paper is hopefully being published soon. Gave me a chance to see what research life is like, and I got to interact with graduate students and learn from them. I started feeling like I would need an advanced degree for my career to go where I wanted it to end up, so I wasn't sure if I should pursue a master's or a PhD. I also wasn't sure if I should go straight out of undergrad or get some work experience first. So this is probably sounding very common, Josh, isn't it? Oh, yes, very much. I think I know where I want to go. I think I need a PhD to get there, but I'm not sure how to proceed step by step. But then he says, the summer before my senior year, I did an internship out of state and spent a lot of hours listening to your podcast to try to help me figure out what I should do when I graduated the following year. When school started again in the fall, I continued to listen and consider my future plans. I ultimately decided that I needed to take a break from academia and go work in industry for a while, but that I would go back to get my advanced degree and hopefully have it paid for by my employer. I'm happy to report that my career is turning out exactly as I had planned so far. I started a job at a large engineering company right after graduating and got to spend the first six months of employment studying and learning technical subjects I wasn't able to study during undergrad. Now I'm doing work that I really enjoy and continue to learn every day. This summer, I began the first class of my master's degree in robotics engineering. I'll be taking one class this semester online, funded by my company, while continuing to work full-time. I know it is not the traditional academic path, and it's not even a PhD, but I'm excited to be continuing my formal education, and I am grateful for the guidance and perspective you two provided to help my decision-making. Keep up the great work. And I have chills running down my spine, Josh, because this is exactly what we want. We want everybody to find the path to science that they love. And there is no one path. We're big proponents of, of taking some time and not rushing into that next step after undergrad into grad school. But also, Dan, totally glad to hear that Adam spent time listening to us. And of course, his career turned out exactly as planned so far. That's how it works. <laughs> well, we, we probably don't get emails from people who listen to us and then their career completely tanked. Yeah, we, we get a few of those, Josh. I just, uh, I hide them from oh, you. Good. You know, Adam, this was, this was a great perspective and it was interesting timing because just the other day I was reviewing an essay. It was written by two PhD students who seemed like they were in a, in a similar situation as Adam. They were actually doing their PhD while simultaneously working in industry. And so 
this increasingly says to me that these opportunities that are, are not the traditional opportunities that we think of in academia certainly are out there where if you are someone who has an interest or a goal of pursuing some some graduate degree, some advanced degree, but you're really drawn to a more applied setting or an industrial setting, there may actually be opportunities for you to do both at the same time if you seek those out. So I think this is another advantage to potentially not just rush right into grad school after undergrad, but taking some time to really give yourself space to explore your own interests and what options are out there for you. And and this makes me think a little bit about this is not something I know a lot about, even though this is now the second time I've come across it in the last few weeks. But if anyone listening is in that situation where maybe you are simultaneously working on an advanced degree on a PhD or master's while you're working at the same time. Um, and, and I don't mean you're working in a different thing, but you actually are able to, as part of your work, part of your job, also get your degree. I'd love to know more about that. We would love to share those types of experiences um, with our listeners because that might be the perfect fit for somebody out there. Yeah, Adam is a mechanical engineer by training and working now in robotics. It may or may not be easier in an engineering field to do that. And that's the kind of thing we would need to hear from our listeners to to understand better. So I think that's exactly right, Josh. Yeah. And, and the other situation that I heard about was more biomedical in focus, in focus. And that is a good segue into our next email. Hold that thought. Yeah. Christy writes, hi, Josh and Dan, I discovered your podcast this week and I've been listening to it nonstop. I will finish my semester of undergrad this fall and I'm applying for biomedical PhD programs during the coming upcoming cycle. I was wondering if you have done any episodes that talk about the differences between biological and biomedical science PhD programs. I've come across numerous schools that have both. I know the former tends to be more focused on basic science, whereas the latter might be more translational. But I'd be really interested in hearing some more similarities and differences. If you have already done an episode on this, could you let me know where to find it? And if not, maybe you could consider doing one in the future. Well, Christy, today is your day. Josh is going to talk about the difference between the word biological and the word biomedical. Well, Christy, the funny thing is the program that I work with is actually called the Biological and Biomedical <laughs> Sciences Program. It's really called <laughs> it's that? It's really called that. Yeah, both. It includes it both. It includes both. And, and they're considered separate and distinct. Yes and no. So yeah, I think you can think of it this way. When I think of biomedical science, all biomedical science contains biology, right? Uh, but not all biology programs are necessarily biomedical. I think biomedical is more of a focus of biology, I and mean, often other other disciplines too, but but primarily biology, focused on questions that tend to be more more medical in their focus. And by medical, you mean human health, right? I do. I, I mean, mean medical human health. means not veterinary medicine, typically. It means diseases of people. Absolutely. And often there are different programs that focus on on veterinary medicine or and and oftentimes those are focused in institutions that have uh, vet schools for example whereas a lot of biomedical programs unsurprisingly tend to be centered around uh, medical schools but that being said many institutions that have biology departments and do biology research um, may have a subset of faculty that have a biomedical focus in their lab. Um, I know even in my undergrad institution where I did research, where there were no PhD students at all, some labs were more um, more biomedical in focus. A lot of those often tend to be sometimes molecular type labs, um, 
sometimes answered by medical questions, but not always. But some examples of some types of programs that aren't necessarily biomedical, there are programs that maybe are more organismal biology. So trying to understand not medical type questions, but how um, organisms uh, function, um, animal behavior could be one, although sometimes that has a biomedical bent. Also, ecology and evolution programs or EEB programs, as they're sometimes called, is another fairly substantial facet of biology type programs that aren't necessarily biomedical. But you know, there are programs like ours where you can do both. Actually, we have people come in who uh, we have faculty doing biomedical type research, a lot of those faculty because we are in a medical center. Uh, But there is a subset of faculty who are doing biological research that has nothing to do with medical questions. Yeah. And that, to my mind, the biological research is almost the same as ecological, but that I, I know that's a very narrow focus. If you want to study algae, you're probably doing that in, the, in a biology program, not in a biomedical program. Um, Josh, the other difference that really stands out to me is the sources of funding. I feel like there are differences in where and how much funding each of these programs get. I know that while we were in school, money was flush in the biomedical sciences from the National Institutes of Health in the United States. And it was maybe not quite so easy to access through the National Science Foundation in the biology program. So can you talk a little bit about where the funding comes from? Yeah, um, that's definitely true. Um, In the United States, specifically, if you're doing biomedical research, the National Institutes of Health or NIH is definitely the biggest player. That's who most of us are writing grants uh, to if we're doing biomedically focused research. And we're talking tens of billions of dollars, more than that. I don't, I'm, I, I feel like the scale is much different. Yeah. I mean, I know, you know, I've worked for a large biomedical research institution and it's on the magnitude of hundreds of millions of dollars annually in grant funding from the NIH. But, but the other big player um, in the United States is the National Science Foundation or NSF. And NSF, as a different government agency, very much tries to distinguish themselves from NIH. Uh, government, the federal government especially, doesn't always like to have overlap in how they spend their money. And so, so in NSF often carves out um, a specific niche that is particularly not biomedical. <laughs> so sometimes I think of it as the science that's everything else that's not medical and focused. And a great example of this that our listeners may be aware of is there is a a very popular in the United States uh, pre-graduate fellowship called the NSF Graduate Research Fellowship or the NSF GRFP. And one challenge I know a lot of students, a lot of undergraduates and early career graduate students um, who apply who are maybe working in biomedical fields, it's important that they frame their research in the basic science questions that their research uh, relates to uh, because NSF very intentionally tries to not fund biomedical research because that's NIH's purview. And and it's worth noting there are other funding agencies, like if you do, we mentioned veterinary medicine, there are other branches of government and other places you can go for funding there. Right, and we can post some links to uh, some supporting documentation for how you would approach funding from a biomedical versus biological. There's some documents that help you craft your grant proposal for the NSF versus the NIH. So instead of saying cardiomyocytes like you would for the NIH, you might say heart muscle cells. So there's there's a way to approach the differences between the funding agencies depending on what you choose. But I don't think 
this is make or break. I think this is for the individual student. What is it you want to study? And then you've got to learn to adapt to that that realm. Uh, no, absolutely. And Christy mentioned she is in the process of applying to programs and seeking out programs where she wants to apply. And I think the main thing you want to think about when you're choosing programs is even less about the name of the program and what those words mean. But at the end of the day, the biggest part of your PhD experience is going to be working in a lab, working in someone's lab. And so I think you want to make sure that whatever program you apply for, that there are faculty, multiple faculty, that you are interested in the work they do. And whatever program you apply to gives you access to working with that particular faculty. Makes sense. Well, I will read one last question to you, Josh. Uh, This comes from Adam. Dear Josh and Dan, I recently discovered the podcast and have absolutely loved listening to every second of it. And and he mentioned Dr. Bowman recommended it to me. So I've been listening to the the most recent episodes as well as going back and listening to the episodes about applying to graduate school. You'll remember our episodes with Beth Bowman from Vanderbilt about how to apply and craft your uh, application. He continues, I'm currently working on my fall 2021 PhD applications. One concern I have is that I have worked in a single lab as an undergraduate. I joined relatively early on in my undergraduate career, late in my first semester, so I've been working in it for nearly three years now. However, this means that I only really have one letter of recommendation from a PI that I've done research with. Do you think this will hold me back when it comes to PhD admissions? Thank you very much in advance for putting out so many helpful episodes. One lab, but pretty deep experience. Is that a problem or a benefit? Well, this is a question that that I get a lot, and and, you know, Adam, here's the reality. And, and really for anyone, I mean, your experiences are what they are. And kudos to you for getting started in research early in your undergraduate career. You said you've been working in this one one lab for three years. And that's a really amazing experience. Whereas a lot of applicants we see coming into PhD programs have maybe bounced around to this research experience and that research experience. Maybe you worked for a semester or two at your home institution and then you did a summer program somewhere else. Um, And that's fine too, right? There are advantages to doing that. You can get exposure to different uh, types of research and a strategic advantage potentially is you have multiple people to write you letters of recommendation. However, one thing I have heard sometimes from admissions committee members is that recognizing that the graduate school experience, the PhD experience, is in that experience, you're going to be working on a project in a lab for a much longer period of time. And so there really is an appreciation for applicants who come in who have had a similar experience to that before. So Adam, like you're describing, you know, you've had the opportunity to really dig deep in a particular research area and learn a lot about it and carry a project through over a longer period of time. So I think that's a real, that can be a real strength. And so I think what's going to be important is that you leverage it that way, you discuss it that way, and you make sure to point out um, why that's been such a great informative experience for you as a researcher during your time in undergrad, um, you know, sticking with that lab for a long time. Now, clearly, your letter of recommendation from your research advisor of three years is going to be the centerpiece of your application. It's very important. It's the only game in town. (laughs) Yeah. So um, whereas, you know, someone who's done three different research experiences, they have three different letters. If one letter is kind of meh or so-so, 
that's not as big of a deal because you have two others, but I think it's worth taking some time. I'm assuming it's gone really well the way you're, you know, you're speaking of it, but you know, just having some conversations with your, with your PI about how important that letter is going to be. Um, and, and, you know, just making sure that that's going to be the strong letter that you hope it will be. And it probably is. This one's interesting to me because I don't, I don't think we've talked about this issue before and I didn't expect your answer and I, and I appreciate it. So, my feeling was I was worried about Adam's experience. Has he tried enough things? When I was in a microbiology lab as an undergrad, I assumed what I wanted to do was microbiology. And it turned out that's not what I ended up studying when I got to graduate school. So I was worried for him that he hadn't gone out and tried enough different things. That being said, your response, I think, is is exactly on. If if I am interviewing somebody for a job and they have had six jobs over the last three years, each one for six months, I'm very nervous about their ability to stay with something. And so I think there's, I think what you're pointing out is there's this balance, and graduate school really is the long slog. It's a five year commitment, and so showing that you have been able to stick with a question and you're still interested in it, still excited about it, there's some value there. So I, this one's. This is different for me than anything we've talked about before. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's it's worth noting that Adam's experience was much more similar to my own experience uh, applying to graduate school. When I was applying, I had also worked in only one lab, and, and actually not as long as Adam had. I had worked in a lab for about a year and a half before applying to graduate school. Now, from what I've seen, working kind of closely on the inside for 10 years, I think many programs are absolutely more competitive today than they were, Dan, when you and I applied. I and mean, I think we've probably said this on the show before, but I can remember at least a couple of people in our class who had not done really bench research at all who started in the PhD program. That absolutely wouldn't happen today. So it is possible that myself coming from a small liberal arts school, having only done a year and a half of research in one lab, even though I did have a very strong letter uh, from my PI, I maybe would have not gotten in today. Maybe I would have to go and get some additional research at a research institution as a technician or in a postback program prior to going to graduate school. And and Adam, I mean that's sort of that's the other advice we give is, you know, I certainly think you've done enough that you probably have a good idea of what you want to do and that research is what you want to continue doing in a graduate program. So because you know that and you feel confident in that, go for it. Make sure you really leverage the experience you have as a strength and see what happens. But, you know, if it doesn't work out, you can always uh, gain some additional experience. I think it's going to be great for you. I'm going to also assume if you're going to a program that allows some kind of laboratory rotations where you get to try a few different labs and disciplines out, that's going to be a great experience for you, having really the bulk of your experiences being in one place to really go try out not just some different types of research, but just different environments, different mentorship type, different, yeah, just different, yeah, lab settings is going to be a growth opportunity for you too. I was thinking the same thing, and that that is what convinced me that I shouldn't be worried for Adam because there is still time to do some of those uh, trials, and especially with with the common nature of these umbrella programs, Josh, like the one that you are part of, you have the chance to really do a lot of different research, and you should take advantage of that. Find a few rotations, one or two out of the three maybe that you'll do, that are outside of what you thought you'd want to do, but maybe give you a new skill or maybe introduce you to a new field because I think it's those synergies. And I've said it before and I'll say it again. It's it's the combination of 
uh, backgrounds and fields and the diversity of your experience that leads to the best science. And Adam mentioned uh, Dr. Beth Bowman from from Vanderbilt, who we've had on the show a few times before. And I did want to mention that I was talking to to Beth uh, just this past week, and we serve on a committee together right now that of folks from multiple universities. And the topic we're discussing right now is in the fall, many of our programs are going to be moving our interview and recruitment activities from on campus to a virtual setting which is probably not surprising to a lot of folks with the pandemic situation likely to stretch into uh, late 2020 and early 21. Normally, we would be bringing our top applicants onto campus to show off, uh, to meet with faculty in person and see the area. But unfortunately, that's not going to be uh, prudent or, or a possibility this winter. So we're all thinking about how can we provide the best experience in a virtual way Um, But some questions that have already been popping up and will likely continue to pop up is from all of these folks like some that are writing in today, as they're applying to programs and realizing these interviews are going to be virtual, how do I prepare myself the best that I can for a virtual type interview? And so um, I think Beth is going to come on the show uh, with us later this fall to discuss how you can really maximize your experience uh, participating in uh, recruitment and choosing a grad program when all those experiences are virtual. Oh, that's, ex- that's news to me. That's exciting. I'm, I'm happy to have her back. I didn't think you would have a problem with it, Dan. Well, these were great questions. Um, and, you know, we love answering these questions. And Dan and I have been talking about it. And this is, it really is one of the original ways that we envisioned this show was folks would just let us know what they're thinking about, what they're struggling with, what they want advice on. And we would do our best to give some advice or to connect you with people who maybe can help. So we're going to hopefully do this a lot more often. Uh, But to do that, we need to hear from you. So if you have questions or topic ideas for the show, we would love to hear it. You can get in touch with us in several ways. You can email us podcast at hellophd.com or you can send us a tweet at hellophd. If you like the show, we'd love to hear about it. Uh, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, and we love love getting your feedback. If you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron. You can go to our website, hellophd.com, click the Become a Patron button, or you can visit patreon.com slash hellophd, and that will help us purchase more tiny cans of cider. And we would especially want to thank all of our current patrons for their ongoing support. All right, Josh. Well, another one in the bag. Episode 140, that's a milestone. Five years, that's a milestone. 40 years old, that's a milestone. So many milestones. Let's, let's keep, keep going, man. In episode one, did you think we would, we would hit? Episode two? No, I did not. <laughs> I, the reason we started this ethanol section is because of how nervous we both were about <laughs> trying to record ourselves. That's a good point. We're like, and if we're going to do this, we need to get a beer in us at least. I'm proud of us that we did a few episodes with no ethanol. Uh, proving that we have gotten a little more comfortable with the format. That is true. Dan, do you think you would have been more surprised that we would have achieved 140 episodes or that we would still be doing this when we both were 40 years old? Uh, The latter, certainly. The latter, certainly. It seems so far away back in 2015, but here we are. (laughs) The slow march of time (laughs) until the ultimate finale. Should I stop now? Maybe so. Well, thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. We'll see you then, Josh. (laughs) 